previously on Discography with special guest Lou Barlow. I just love getting high and recording, so I didn't. I didn't. I mean, I was working at working night shift, night shift at a nursing home, doing psychedelics, smoking. Oh, weed. like like easy with uh, Cuckoo's Nest. Were you thinking <laughs> along those lines? <laughs> no, I don't know what I was. I don't know what I was thinking other than. I just wanted to experience, you know, and I did. I mean, I had I had a really I had an absolutely beautiful I had a life changing acid trip when I, I went to work on acid and it was one of the most beautiful experiences of my life. to Discography, the music podcast that delivers the objective truth about the entire discography of every single artist and band that ever existed. I'm your host, Dave Gebro, and in this episode, we'll be turning our spray cans on Black Sabbath, along with very special guest, Jim Florentine. So if you're tuning in for the first time, just I'm going to come clean. I just quit my job a few weeks ago while putting the Pavement series together, which was uh, a six-episode series celebrating one of the 90s greatest bands, uh, because I do it all, which requires stupid amounts of time. Everything from obtaining the guests, doing all the social media, all the recording and editing, you name it. And I love it. I'd have it no other way. The last six weeks of my career as a hearing instrument specialist was spent literally editing and promoting the Pavement series eight and a half hours a day, nonstop, until there was nothing to do but leave. So why am I telling you this? Well, because I'm doubling down on Discograffiti. My wife and three-year-old son are doubling down on Discograffiti. We're selling our house and planning on living as frugally as possible on the East Coast. And all of that? just to ensure that Discograffiti is the standard bearer for all that is awesome about music. So don't go anywhere when this episode's done. Subscribe. Coming up, we have three more fucking weeks of Jim Florentine rating Black Sabbath, then two weeks of Randy Randall from No Age rating Jesus Lizard, uh, Sergio Diaz from Os Mutantes rating his own early work, and on and on and on way, way into the future. Here's what I'd love for you to do. Check out all the back episodes. Trust me, they're all as good as the one you're about to hear. Share the ones you dig with your friends, post them all on your various pages and accounts, and tag me on the posts. I promise to join in and make a comment. Also, join our Facebook group, Discograffiti Soldiers of Sound. We're on Instagram and Twitter, too, in case you don't mess with the Zuck. Also, please rate the podcast five stars, along with a beautifully worded review, especially if you're listening to the show on good old Amazon Music or, of course, Spotify. It'll help a lot. The link to our legendary playlist is in the show notes and also on our website at discograffiti.com. And if you're like me, and enough is just never enough, then visit patreon.com slash discograffiti and become one of our Patreon soldiers of sound. Our Patreon feed is the ultimate music deep dive. I post three shows a week. The main show on Sunday, then Discograffiti's The Private Press with Paul Major on Tuesdays, and a Thursday wildcard episode, which is either an interview with that week's guest or one of our other offshoot shows like Rock Cousteau, Queasy Listening, and Battle Royale. So hey, try it for a month. You've got nothing to lose. Okay, back to business. First things first, you need to know just how seriously I take this craziness. Discograffiti's heavily researched, and the music's always reassessed with fresh ears. 
We're not just covering albums. Nope, we do a searingly honest deep dive analysis of all EPs, singles, comp tracks, relevant solo work, and bootlegs. Every release is slapped with an objectively accurate star rating between zero and five, which allows us all to come face to face with the true shape of an artist's overall arc. Hold up, you bastards! I could not possibly be more psyched about our guest tonight. He's a stand-up comedian, actor, author, television personality, and unquestionably the greatest crank caller of all time, Jerry Lewis included. He is understandably well-known for co-hosting that metal show on VH1 Classic, along with Don Jameson and Eddie Trunk, as well as for his legendary work on Crank Yankers, especially Special Ed and Bobby Fletcher. He hosts Metal Midgets on Sirius XM Satellite Radio and a podcast called Everybody's Awful Except You. He's released six albums of stand-up comedy, two comedy specials, six installments in the Terrorizing Telemarketers prank call compilation, and three installments of Meet the Creeps, a hidden camera show. His 2018 book, Everybody's Awful Except You, reached number one on the Book Soup nonfiction chart. Like me, he's from Jersey via Brooklyn, which basically explains every last thing you need to know. However, unlike me, tonight's guest opened for Metallica at Orion Fest and played to a crowd of over 50,000. Quite odd for someone who never seriously pursued heavy metal as a career path due to a lack of virtuosity on any instrument whatsoever. Lads and ladies, way out yonder in Discograffitiville, will you please ooh and ah in sexualized awe while his Emmy gleams tantalizingly from his bedside table, welcome him with open arms and guarded hearts, but just know in your soul the extent to which I've gone to procure literally the perfect guest for the occasion next to the snarling almighty shit encrusted demon of the underworld himself, Satan motherfucking Jim Florentine. Wow. What an intro. Yeah, it was, it was great. I'm trying to go half bio, half intro. (laughs) That was great, man. Thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, you're the, you're the only guy to do this in my mind. Sabbath's just been my favorite band since probably, I don't know, maybe probably 14 years old. I realized it's my favorite band that ever since then never wavered. Never. No one's ever hit that number one spot at the other bands, metal bands and stuff. It's still always been Sabbath. There still always will be. What, what is the, what was the moment? I mean, was there one moment where you said, where somebody played it for you or did you discover them uh, on your own or was it, you have a huge family. Was it one of your uh, siblings? My two older brothers were about four or five years older than me. So we share all the same, we, there was seven kids in my family. So we shared a, the same room uh, and they would just, we had a stereo in there and they were just playing, you know, Sabbath, ACDC, Nugent and stuff like that. And, uh, I remember going to the store with them when the day technical efficacy came out in 1976 and they picked up the eight track. <laughs> and I, I remember them putting it in the car. I was sitting in the backseat. I was so excited. I was what, 12 at the time. So excited to hear it. You know, they, you know, they took the rapper off. It was the first day it came out and put the eight track in and was listening to that. And then they took me, uh, when I was 14 years old, black Sabbath with Van Halen open in 1978 at the garden. Right. That was you my second there? concert ever. No shit. That was, that was a, what was number that, one? That was a never say die tour. 
The yeah, first yeah. the first concert I went to was uh, the openings of Giant Stadium uh, in the, in Jersey with Ted Nugent, Aerosmith, Frank Marino, Mahogany Rush, and I. The, might have been Journey or some other band. That was my first concert, like a few months before that. You're obviously a, a very discerning now as a music fan. As a kid, did you have those kinds of chops to be able to know, okay, technical ecstasy, not as good. Masters of reality, whole different story. No, I had no idea until later on when you go through the catalog and figure out which ones you like the best. Right. So, right. No, I had no idea at the time. I was just, you know, whatever they were playing, whether I was driving around in the backseat of the car, because, you know, when you were a teenager back then, it was always like you had to have an equalizer and a power booster in your car and the best speakers and just crank right. it as loud as possible and just drive around the neighborhood. So I was always in the back just, you know, absorbing that that metal into my head. And I had no choice but to like metal. I found friends that liked it, too, and I just really got drawn to it. And did you, know? you I mean, you did want to go into being a musician at that time, didn't you? Yeah, I did. I know my friends were in bands, like high school friends and stuff. I just couldn't play an instrument. I tried, I was a lefty, so nobody could teach me guitar. I was like, I could teach a righty, and I couldn't do anything with my right hand. I went for singing lessons one time. I lasted one one session, and the woman's like, listen, I can... She goes, I'll be honest with you. You don't have any ear for music and you probably never will. I could try, I could, you know, you could waste your money. I, maybe you can get a little better, but I just don't see it. But it, it's, if you want to keep coming back and I appreciated her honesty because I knew I was terrible. Right. So I just never, and you know, I just didn't have any rhythm. So to forget have the you gotten better. I mean, you must, as a, you know, with all the, the company you keep, you must've gotten a little bit better along the way. No. No. Okay. I appreciate your honesty as well. No, I still, still terrible. I'd be terrified. Like I've never sung karaoke in my life before. I'd be terrified. I make horror movies. Uh, so that, that darkness to the, of the band always appealed to me, uh, because it felt, uh, much more of a real darkness than a lot of the other metal I'd heard, which kind of seemed like it was playing a darkness. Or like if you want to use a Pink Floyd analogy, Roger Waters would sing about being insane and Sid Barrett was so insane he couldn't even like pull his ideas together in a way that adequately uh, explained insanity. Um, so with these guys, you felt like they were singing from the inside out. That appealed to me. The, another thing that appealed to me about this band, they kind of didn't really seem to give a shit if they lived or died while they were recording. And then it became friendly with Bill Ward, uh, maybe about six, seven years ago. I wouldn't say good friends, but friendly. And um, that's kind of uh, the background for me. Actually, before we go into the Sabbath stuff, I do want to say that although I've been a big fan of yours for a while, there is a uh, crank call that you did for the terrorizing telemarketers compilation that I think, uh, you know, along with all the great stuff you've done on those comps, that one call is just, I've never heard anything quite like it in my life. It's called No, No, and I'm just going to play it right now. Hello. Hi, my name is have time for me to explain to you exactly what we can do for you. Yeah. Now, for you to qualify for our program, you must have a minimum of $5,000 in unsecured debt. Now, the most important part to qualify you, you must be struggling to make your payments are past due. What was that part you just said? You must be struggling or past due. Are no. you past due? No, that was before that. Struggling. No, no, before that. So you must have a minimum of $5,000 and above in unsecured debt with each. No, no, not that. What is it? No, there was something else I missed in there. 
to qualify you for our program, you must no, have a no. Uh, you must have a minimum. No, license. no, no. It wasn't that. Well, what is it, sir? I don't know. I don't know. If I, if I knew what it was, I wouldn't be asking you. We are a nonprofit debt selling no, company. No, no. I'm reading from a strip, and I know exactly what I just stated. The part right before the debt relief, you said. What was that? Um, we are debt. The debt relief. We are the part. Uh, it was right before that. We are the exclusive agent. No, 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 no. You, you're throwing me for, for loops right here, and that's all that I have stated. Must have been right after the debt relief thing. A non-profit debt no. settlement. No, no. Let me finish, sir. A non-profit debt settlement company. No, it's not that. You it's not that. Information. It's not that. Oh, this is frustrating. Would you please let me explain that maybe you won't be so confused or getting so frustrated? Okay, but you said that one three times. I told you that wasn't it. Okay. Okay, then let me go on to proceed further then. Okay. Now, because we are a nonprofit company. No, no. I'm just, I'm, I'm trying to explain, sir, to you the program, and you're acting as if you don't want to correspond and listen. You keep hollering, no, no. Because I know, as soon as you start talking, I know that's not it. I don't know what you want. I just want to get at the information, but I missed a part. Maybe someone else can help you. It was right I'm before the debt relief. We are a debt relief company. Okay. No, no. Thing, wait that's, a minute. No, that's... You keep hollering, no. And no. I'm getting frustrated, and I need to stay professional with you. Well, that's not okay. it. Okay. You keep telling me it's right before the debt relief. I know what my strips are. Yeah, and what is... Listen. A non-profit No. It's that's not, before no, that. No. That's it. Well, I, okay, well, what's right after that? Right after that, that's, that's the information regarding debt relief. No, no. You keep hollering, no, 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 no. That's very frustrating, and I can't help you. I haven't even went through the strip with you yet. Well, it's frustrating when you keep repeating the same thing when I tell you it's not it. We keep going over the same thing over and over, and I, my day is going to continue to go a good day. You know, and it would be a better day if you could just give me the information that I missed, the piece well, of... you listen. Okay. Now, because we are a non-profit debt... No, no, it's not that. Will you stop saying no, no? You're not listening. Let me go on through this strip. Now, because we are a non-profit company, we are able to guarantee... It's not that, no. It's not that part, though. I heard that. I'm going, I'm moving on from that. Because there's nothing else there. Maybe you'll get some understanding in the next part. And you don't want me to keep going back over them, and I'm, and I'm not going to keep repeating myself over and over. I need I'm, to know that important piece of information, and you're not giving it to me. The only important piece of information is that we are a non-profit company, and we represent... I got that. No, no. Well, bye, sir, because you still how to know, and I can't. I'm not taking this from you today. She hung up. <laughs> What makes that so genius to me, the push-pull, it's almost like you couldn't have casted somebody who was a better recipient to the call. And what you're adding to keep her hooked in and to push her the fuck away is so spot on. Uh, it was like really the stars aligned for that, for that call. And it, that is one of the greatest works of art in any art form uh, uh, you know that I've ever stumbled across and I play it for everybody no I appreciate it and I was saying before like I was just one take I didn't have any idea she I just say what I you know uh my buddy Don Jameson was next and we had some idea to do a call together and when I picked it up I was gonna say hold on let me get my brother on because he whatever whatever the idea was and then I just said wait what was that part you said 
And then she's like, but I go, no, 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 before that. And then I, I just went with the call and Don was looking at me like, Hey, you're going to join me in. I'm like, no, I think I may be onto something here. Right. And it was just all, oh, it just happened just like that. There was no, I didn't go, Hey, I'm going to tell this woman. I didn't hear it. Go back to this part. Maybe go back to this part. Can you, this, this, that. I just winged it. And it just, it was just gold. And it, it always was better when you get an African American woman. Right. Cause they right. get angry. They don't right. take a lot yeah. of crap. So right. whenever I know what it is, I'm like, good, they're going to get riled up right away. <laughs> and I've always noticed that. I'm like, go, right. So when I got her, I knew she was going to get, you know, pissed right away. I'm like, perfect. Cause you want that tension in the call. Yeah. That the, yeah, the amount of like the exact amount of tension in there was, was so spot on. Like I said, you couldn't have cast somebody any better. What's your favorite call that you've done? I, I don't know. You know, that one's definitely up there. I mean, I could, there's one, um, a track called the record. It's like oh, nine okay, minutes yeah, yeah. long where I got messed with this guy trying to get me to sign up for a subscription for a newspaper. I love uh, Horny Priest is one of my oh, favorite. Oh, Horny Yeah, that was... <laughs> that that was one. We actually got a, a new one coming out, Volume 7, in about another month. We're up to number seven. Me and awesome. Don Jackson just finished it. So it's some really good work. But yeah, Horny Priest is a good one. Um, uh, the Bitch Call, when I was calling the guy That's Bitch. awesome. Yeah, because he's he really kind of attacks you back. Which is great because I love, yeah. like I said, once again, and just that I like that was the thing. I go, I'm going to call this someone a bitch if it's a guy, and then he goes, No, my name is Rich. So it was just a, how ironic. Perfect. Yeah, it's perfect. Like and he then, almost thought I confused his name. Right, and then he says to you, uh, "Well, you got nothing better to do than to sit and watch porn all day, right?" Isn't that? Yeah, that? yeah. Well, then he goes, "What are you just doing, sitting around waiting for the phone?" I'm like, yeah, that's what I'm doing. This yeah, yeah. I'm hoping it's you. Yeah, yeah. I'm sitting around waiting for the phone to ring. So I got to ask you, you: Do all these different styles of comedy i've never actually seen you live doing stand-up but uh, all the different iterations the hosting the the writing the you do all kinds of all kinds of different stuff where do you is there a, a is there a, a a way of doing this that you feel the most natural no stand-up comedy is my favorite it's always it? been. i love going up on stage and just creating and performing you don't know you're going up there without a net. You don't know how it's going to go. You're trying new jokes and just, you know, performing live. And I could say whatever I want to say. I could do whatever I want. I could dress the way I want, you know, whatever. I, I'm basically my own boss. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I like that. Uh, and just, you know, pushing pushing the button, see how far I can go. Going over the line, maybe I'll come back, whatever like that. So that's what I love yeah, doing yeah. the best. Yeah, I'm a really, really big fan. Um, Thank you. You know, uh, you know, a lot of times here I'm reaching out and I'm, you know, just trying to get the show going. This one was like burning a hole in my calendar. Um, so the episode rules tonight as established by, by Jim himself, no non-Aussie and no non-Dio. That's another episode for another time. So... Now let's introduce the characters in today's episode. Ozzy Osbourne, lead vocals. Tony Iommi, guitar. Geezer Butler, bass. It's also his birthday today. And Bill Ward on drums. Uh, okay, I don't want to talk about any of the other people who dove through the ranks. We'll get to Dio. Uh, but before we move forward here, uh, I, I, we're going to do a, a little segment that I like to call the run-up. And what this does is gets us through to release number one in as quick a fashion as is possible. So 1968, uh, this is sort of formation and early days of the band. So... Uh, following the breakup of the previous band, Mythology, in 1968, uh, Tony Iommi, who uh, was on guitar, and Bill Ward on drums, they wanted to form a heavy blues rock band. 
This is in Birmingham, uh, land of belching smokestacks. And even though I've never been there, when I imagine it, everything is gray. There's not even colors don't even exist. Uh, the two of them enlist uh, Geezer Butler on bass and Ozzy on vocals, who had played together in a band called Rare Breed. And Osborne had placed an ad in the local music shop that said, Ozzy Zig needs gig, has own PA. The new group was initially called, do you know what they were called, Jim? Earth. No, even before that. Um, yeah, there was a bunch of different names. Some, like the least likely sounding piece of shit name of all time. The Polka Talk Blues oh, Band. Oh, that's right. Yeah, 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 you're right. Yeah, so the Polka Talk Blues Band, the name was taken either from a, a brand of talcum powder or an Indian Pakistani clothing shop. The exact origin's a little bit lost in the, in the fog of time. But uh, <clears throat> that iteration of the band included slide guitarist Jimmy Phillips, who was a childhood friend of a childhood friend of Osborne's, and a, sax, a, a guy on sax, believe it or not, named Alan Clark. So after shortening their name to Polka Talk, the band again changed their name to Earth, which Osborne hated. Uh, rather than asking the two weird other dudes to leave the band, uh, these guys, I'm, I'm guessing uh, in a sort of call forward to the communication issues that they would have to face for the rest of time as a band, instead of asking the two other guides to leave the band, they instead broke up and then quietly reformed as a four piece. So in December 68, uh, Iomi very quickly left Earth and joined Jethro Tull. A very strange uh, sort of, you know, faint left. But although his his stint with the band was very quick, Iomi can be seen with Tall on the Rolling Stones Rock and Roll Circus TV show. He did not like the direction that Tall was moving, so he returned to Earth by the end of the month. So in 69... Uh, the band discovers that they're being mistaken for another English group named Earth. So they decided to change their name again. So uh, a cinema across the street from the band's rehearsal space was showing the 1963 horror flick Black Sabbath, <laughs> Boris Karloff, directed by Mario Bava. So they're watching people line up to see the movie. And Geezer uh, noted that it was strange that people spend so much money to see scary movies. So right after that, Ozzy and Geezer wrote the lyrics for for their uh, their title track of the band, which was inspired by a vision that Butler had of a black silhouetted figure standing at the foot of his bed. And that song was the blueprint of the rest of their lives. Uh, the ominous sound of the of the song and the, and the really dark lyrics, they pushed the band in a way different direction. No longer were they trying to sound like Cream. Now they were kind of staking out their own very specific territory. Rob Halford from Judas Priest called that song probably the most evil song ever written. Uh, they changed their name to Black Sabbath to accommodate that, that song title in August 69 and made the decision to focus on writing similar material in an attempt to create the musical equivalent of horror films. Phase one, forging the heaviest of metals down in Satan's smithery, 1969 to 1973. The band's first show as Black Sabbath took place on August 30th, 69 in Workington, England. They were signed to Phillips in uh, November 69 and released their first single, Evil Woman, which is a cover of a song by the, by the band Crow in January 70, which is perfect. 
These guys were a 70s band. They weren't a 60s band. <clears throat> so Sabbath's first major exposure came when they appeared on John Peel's Top Gear radio show, performing Black Sabbath, NIB, Behind the Wall of Sleep, and Sleeping Village. Although Evil Woman didn't really chart, uh, the band were afforded two days of studio time in November to record their debut. Here's where I shut the fuck up. Uh, and in 1970, Black Sabbath is recorded and released. Masterpiece. Um, yeah, I don't you know, that record company made them put in some of the versions. I think the different versions of the first Sabbath record, Evil Woman's on there. Yeah, yeah. Um, but some of them are not some of them i have different versions of the album where it's not but yeah they the record company decided they needed a a cover song for like a hit single and it definitely didn't it was all right the song but you could tell it wasn't it's like sabbath i know didn't want to do it they were reluctant to do it i know they recorded the album in what 48 hours yeah yeah they were done in two days the whole album um the warning song's kind of a, an old cover song too i forget the name of the band that whole like 14 minute or 12 minute jam, which is great. Oh, yeah. yeah. At the very end of the thing. Yeah. It's, uh, it's awesome. Yeah, I yeah, love that, that. That's pretty incredible. It, you know, what's cool about this record is, you know, they still have one foot in the sixties in that sort of blues rock thing. I think they kind of, you know, kind of ring all that, all that shit, all those influences out of their, uh, kind of get it out of the way within the first, I think, what by album number three i think there was no more blues rock really yeah but that was uh i, I love that i love that jam and just that you know yeah, it's cool it's, the album's so raw it really you know, is and uh you know they, they basically recorded it live and you know do you, um, do you think i mean this is kind of widely regarded as the first heavy metal album and the black sabbath is has at least been referred to as the first doom metal song do you think that that's uh an accurate assessment or do you think that's a little a little too facile to give that designation probably i don't you know i know there was some other like blue cheer or something right, was around right. and there was a couple other bands that you know were metal and they were i forget i can't remember the names they would say well, like that was the first metal record but you know, the first big one, even, you know, Deep Purple already had like three records out and they were like a weird band until they, they hit their stride in the early 70s. So I would give it to this record, definitely be the first metal metal uh, album yeah, yeah. of all time. So, yeah, you, you are right. It was, uh, you know, two days given over to all of the work on the record, but the actual recording was one single 12-hour session on October 16th, 1969. Uh, Iomi said... Uh, this is a direct quote. We just went in the studio and did it in a day. We played our live set and that was it. We actually thought a whole day was quite a long time. Then off we went the next day to play for 20 pounds in Switzerland. So aside from the bells, thunder and rain that were added to the beginning of the opening track and the double track guitar solos on NIB and Sleeping Village, there was that was basically it. It was live. Um, and that's pretty intense to know that not only are they, you know, they're doing a, a decent job of it and everything's in time, but uh, they're creating a whole new style of music. Uh, you know, you look at the Beatles who, you know, had that very first album, had a very similar situation where they had one day to lay down their live set. Um, the Beatles, you know, produced a great record as well, but they weren't, you know, they didn't, um, you know, create a genre that day. That That's sort of like, you know, a band that plays clubs and is doing three or four sets a night. 
you know, for, for, you know, two years and they're working on those songs and they're really honed and they know, you know, the people that were coming to see them were they're obviously responding to them. So that's why a lot of bands first albums are the best. Cause they, they can work those songs in the clubs and find out if, if it's not going over, if the crowd's really not responding, maybe we got to change something or just get rid of that song, put another one in. And that's why always the second album that people, the bands put out, they don't have that, that freedom to go back out there and, and work those songs live before they bring them in and record them. So they don't know right. if they're, the, the response they're going to get. So that's what, with this first Sabbath record, they basically just played their set that they were probably playing when they were doing three, four sets a night. What makes uh, Iomi's playing style so, um, you know, so immediately identifiable is an accident they had at a, at a sheet metal factory when he was 17, where the tips of his middle fingers of, uh, of his fretting hand were cut off. So he created, um, well, you probably know this, right? I mean, you probably know, you probably have an exact replica of his false fingertips, right? Yeah, he just put like basically like glued like plastic fingertips and had to come up with his own sound. Yeah, it was uh, actually from a dish detergent bottle. He detuned the strings on his guitar to make it easier for him to bend them, uh, which is really was really just a pragmatic decision. But what it did was create this massive, heavy sound that had never been heard before. Um, you know, what he ex explained, uh, he was talking to Phil Alexander and Mojo in 2013. He'd, I'd play a load of chords and I'd have to play fifths because I couldn't play fourths because of my fingers. That helped me develop my style of playing, bending the strings and hitting the open string at the same time just to make the sound wilder. Um, and in the same article, Geezer said, back then the bass player was supposed to do all these melodic runs, but I didn't know how to do that because I'd been a guitarist. So all I did was follow Tony's riff. That made the sound heavier. <clears throat> His bass work in especially those early records, it's like, it, it's almost like, I'm listening to the the Almond Brothers because it's like it almost feels like two guitars that are just uh, stacked on top of each other. No, if you go see, when when you see Sabbath live and just you know that classic lineup, it's like you really notice how like Geezer is the driving force behind that band, which you wouldn't think the bass player. You just watch him, you're like, man, it's insane. Yeah. I mean, and I love he plays with no pick too, which is great. Is that so? I didn't know that, actually. That is crazy. I, I love this record. So uh, uh, for, from the cover on down, so you look at that cover, that is one creepy fucking cover. It is perfect. Um, and at that time, uh, you know, the reviews, uh, you know, I was kind of under the impression, uh, just as a general thing, that that commercially they were selling tons of records and uh, the critics just hated them. But I figured that the cool critics had gotten them, but they didn't even Lester bangs. Yeah. But the, the, the thing with Lester bangs and most of the, you know, like Rolling Stone and stuff like that, they never liked heavy metal. They never gave heavy metal any shot. ACDC wasn't on the cover of Rolling Stone until like 2004 when they went in that rock and roll. Right. Hall. Sabbath wasn't on until late. I don't even know if they ever did an actual cover. I know Ozzy was on maybe once in the 2000s or whatever, maybe a solo thing, but they never respected heavy metal. So I wouldn't expect a guy like Lester Bangs or those, you know, like David Lee Roth said, you know, the reasons, the reason uh, critics like Elvis Costello is because they look like them. <laughs> right, right. Great quote. So <laughs> I, I, I would, I almost gravitated towards the bands that didn't get good reviews. Yeah, 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 totally. I mean, you know, but 
the thing about Lester Bangs, and, and which is one of the reasons why he's one of the only rock critics I ever quote on this show, because I don't really respect rock criticism as a, as a thing, but Lester lived it. So he was... He was pushing Alice Cooper. He was pushing um, the Stooges at the time. So I thought, in retrospect, uh, that you know the Sabbath was par for the course for him. But he described it as just like Cream, but worse. And he described the he dismissed the album as a shock, despite the murky song titles and some inane lyrics that sound like Vanilla Fudge, um, so, which is surprising to me. Looking at this thing. You know, certainly retrospectively, it's, uh, you know, Rolling Stone is tripping over their shoelaces to rank it very high in the best best albums of all time list. I think uh, in the most recent uh, greatest albums of all time, it was listed as 355, and it's listed as number 44 in their list of the best debut albums of all time. Yeah, um, well, yeah, they came around after Sabbath won in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and the career that they had, and they see the legacy that Sabbath had. But if they were to rank that album and when they wrote that review, it would have been, you know, five from the bottom of all yeah, exactly. the albums. So, so let's, I I'd love to examine this. Like, let's go through it and like talk song by song. The coolest thing for me in looking at this is side one. I'm going to refer to it as demon. Cause that's all the really dark stuff. Side two is creaming. Because they're kind of trying to do a cream thing. Uh, it still has that darkness, but you know, with, with um, Evil Woman and Warning, the you know their feet are definitely planted more in the '60s than Side One. That first song, I mean, you could have this whole episode could be just on that one song. Uh, you know, the 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 thing that strikes me the most uh, before anything else is that they really and truly stand in thrall before Ozzy's vocals and the words that are coming out of his mouth. So it's almost uh, no, it's kind of no surprise at all that there was so much scrutiny at the time on their lyrics, what they stood for in terms of being in stark opposition to Flower Power. There's a tremendous amount of space in the arrangements. You're just hearing these words. I mean, it's a perfect song that's, you know, a song Black Sabbath to start that record off. And then, you know, The Wizard and NIB and then, you know, Wicked World is my I, it's tough, man, because I love Warning, but Wicked World might be my favorite song on the first record. Really? Yeah, that's I love that song. I really like it. I mean, th that's uh, the B side of Evil Woman. The version that I have, it's not on that record. This right? Is yeah, some of the versions it was Wicked World, and the other version, and then it was Evil Woman. So they didn't usually didn't have both on the record. So what you have a favorite song on the uh, on the first record? I would say yeah. I'd say Wicked World. It is Wicked World. Okay, either Wicked World or Warning. Warning is so good too. I just love that jam and the lyrics, and then. Yeah, it's just, um, I just remember just putting that album on, just laying down and just listening over and over again. So it's it's a close between those two. It's very interesting to me that Warning is is your favorite track. I never like the hits. I always, yeah, uh, yeah. whenever the bands have the hit, the, the Wizard's a great song, you know, NIB's a great song, and for, you know, the song Black Sabbath. But I always, I always you know, um, gravitate to the non-hits the deeper tracks in any band that i like but the yeah, yeah. warning and wicked world the beyond the wall sleep that whole jam yeah is so let's let's talk about let's talk about let's just go in order let's just talk about all okay of them. 
So the wizard, first of all, spectacular fucking use of harmonica in a metal tune. I mean, conceptually, that doesn't make any sense at all. Yet somehow, uh, you know, I don't think I've ever heard a harmonica sounding any heavier. Yeah, I mean, that's and that's Ozzy on the harmonica and stuff. Um, that's yeah. a great song. I mean, it's I mean, always... Uh, pre the wizard. I can't even think of another metal song that features harmonica in a way that's this effective. You know, that's that's one thing with Sabbath. They always took chances. Yeah. And and Bill's fucking insane fills. He yeah. Fire on this song. Really. Um, so this is a, a sort of a fantasy thing. This is def definitely lyrically inspired by um, by Gandalf from Lord of the Rings. Uh, Behind the Wall of Sleep. Definitely one of the best on the record. Sick guitar solo and crazy rhythm section work again. Um, and also, like, my favorite moment on that has to be uh, that melodic curly cue in the intro bass riff. I can feel that shit in my bowels when I hear it, if it's loud enough. It's, I, I know. When that you crank that, like you're in your car or wherever, yeah, it, it's, yeah. it's amazing. It really is. And you know, the thing is like that album came out, what, 69, I think it was February 13th, 1970, if I'm not yeah, mistaken, exactly. but yeah. the, it's still, it doesn't sound dated at all. No, not at all. It sounds outside of time. Yeah, it really does. Like you could put it on it. It doesn't go, oh, well, yeah, it's kind of didn't really stand the test of time. It's kind of a little dated, but not at all. It's, it still sounds fresh. <clears throat> uh, NIB. Okay, let's talk about the lyrical conceit being so fucking genius. This is a, a song uh, written in the first person from the point of view of Lucifer. And uh, Geezer has said that the song was about the devil falling in love and totally changing, becoming a good person. You know, the Beatles were, you know, doing all you need is love. You know, they're trying to do it from the point of view of Satan. I just I really love this song. Yeah. You know, and it's um, there's, there's different meanings to it. Supposedly, you know, it's Nativity in Black was they shortened it to NIB. But then also Dio took it as Nativity in Black. But when he joined the band, but then they, you hear these stories that they used to call Bill Ward's like crusty beard because he put in like a ponytail, a nib. Right. I, I love all those things where it's like, uh, you know, is it incredibly dark or is it some cheesy, corny in joke? Right. Um, and, uh, the other, uh, you know, the other anagram that I've also heard is name and blood, notwithstanding any of the, the actual interpretations. Uh, this is an amazing song, not a single, but you know, this could, this could be my favorite on the, on the record. There's, Stiff competition, but this is high up there for me. So uh, look, the, the song is classic. You can't go wrong by picking and I being a real. I, I wouldn't. I would. I'd be surprised that you would take that song. You, that's it, the songs. I mean, it's it's a classic that it was in the you know the Sabbath set for a long time and yeah, whatever version of Sabbath was out there. Ozzy used to even do it solo sometimes too. So I kind of feel like there isn't a on the first five records. Up until, uh, I would say, uh, yeah, through the end of 75, there wasn't a single bad song on any of the records. You're right. There's not mm -hmm. one. I, I, I'd even go even further till um, Never Say Die. Oh, no shit. Okay. Yeah. So technical ecstasy is going to be an interesting discussion. I, I'm guessing here that maybe the time at which you discovered it may be coloring your recollections, although it's impossible to say. But that is, that's, it's kind of the... That's kind of the first one where things go a little bit wonky, but I'm no. It, it's possible because you know usually the first record you hear from a band is your favorite. You remember that yeah, moment yeah. in time, but to me that's not my favorite at all. 
but that's just the first. I probably heard Sabbath before Technal Ecstasy, but I just remember going to the store that day when it came out in 76 to go get it. But I, I'm sure I knew the other stuff. I, it's a little foggy, but I, I'm sure I knew the other Sabbath stuff before that. I, I'm incredibly excited to court dissent with you on that topic. Uh, definitely. Um, when we go to side B on uh, on the debut, uh, you know, it's definitely a, a, a shift of vibe, uh, but you kind of have to be maybe a little bit more familiar with them to really uh, pick up uh, how it's different. But Evil Woman, a sort of downshifted cover tune, it was <clears throat> covered by these guys in their live act, right? Um, I don't even know if they did it live. They might have, but I don't think so. I think the record company, because they were really obscure band, was it? It was um, Crow, maybe or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were called Crow. Yeah, and um, you know, so I don't even think they were aware of the song. I think the record company, if I'm not mistaken, said, "Listen, do this song. This will this will be a hit for you guys." Which, by the way, going back to you know, I never noticed that. I never really realized that side one and side two are so different. You know, like side one is evil, and side two is more of like a jam. I, I, didn't, didn't, I didn't never really picked it together. up this time. This is the first time I heard it where I was like, yeah, there's kind of, they're hedging their bets a little bit. Like the side one is like, we're going to forge a whole new style of music. Side two is like, all right, let's just slow things down. So just in case we're, uh, you know, completely on our own here and, you know, thinking wildly off the beam, uh, you can sort of know, get your bearings. That's what it felt like to me this time around. That's a good point. I, that all these years, I never realized that. And I'm thinking about it. Yeah, absolutely. It is two different sides. Of yeah, music. it really does. It, it does feel very different. And then Sleeping Village, uh, you know, is the beginning of that sort of like, you know, black light, lava lamp, you know, sort of. I really love, you know, these pieces that they put on their records that are these sort of, um, you know, these sort of ambient breakdowns that texture it. They're really actually good. They're not uh, like filler or like, a, you know, placeholder. They're actually like, you know, these tracks, like Sleeping Village is going to go on the playlist. That was the one thing with Sabbath. They, a, lot of, a lot of their songs, they, they wrote like two great songs in one song. Like they could have split those songs up right. when they change mm -hmm. and go in a different direction in the song. Like That could be a whole other song. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And sometimes they do do that. Sometimes they, you know, and th there's some really confusingly titled stuff. Uh, yeah, I know. They're all over the place with, you know, the straightener and all this stuff. And exactly. Yeah, just these exactly. weird titles. I'm like, I don't even know what that means. I, I, I try to avoid most of that stuff because I'm like, there's just too much of it going on. It's confusing. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, like even if you're uh, like a seriously compulsive collector, it's still very, very confusing. Um, but, you know, this is their first example of acoustic ambience. And it, it feels very, actually very much like um, uh, Ennio Morricone uh, and his work for Sergio Leone uh, for the good, the bad and the ugly. And, you know, those spaghetti westerns from the 60s. There's even a boinging mouth harp. Uh, and then your favorite which is over 10 minutes. I believe it's their longest song on record with uh, Megalomania coming second. I feel it's a, it's a little bit bloated and it is a sort of wandering prog-like thing that never really 100% lands. But for me, it's part of the charm. Uh, whereas you have a totally different take on it. Tell me why a sort of like uh, 
<clears throat> very atypical uh, prog-like Black Sabbath tune has hit you harder than the rest of the tracks on the record. I don't know, because I'm not in the prog at all. I don't like prog music, but I just, for some reason, I was always attracted to this song, or just this jam that just went on and on, and then Ozzy coming in with his lyrics, and then there's no lyrics for like five straight minutes, and he comes right, back right. in. <laughs> I know, for, some, for me, for some reason, just I, I only just jamming and just rip it on that guitar it was just uh, i don't know for some reason i just always loved how this record ended with this song and you know what's funny about these guys here's their first album you know they're they're they need an audience and the two songs that they cover are by bands that otherwise i never would have i don't know who the fuck they are crow no clue and warning is by the ainsley dunbar retaliation uh, they certainly could have covered songs that were more recognizable but you got to hand it to them for going obscure i also think like in their live set they were playing like these long like a song like warning would kill time because they were doing right. two or three sets a, sh a night. Right. So it gives the, the other guys, a, you know, gives Ozzy a break to go off the stage for a little bit, you know, let Iomi shine and all that stuff. So I think that might've been yeah. one of the reasons too. You know, I'm always really blown away by a band that, that arrives fully formed. And it's funny as rudimentary as the record is, as what you see is what you get as this is, it feels like the arrival of a fully, fully formed adult being like they barely even got better than this they just continued being as good i mean like that riff and the melodic bass parts in behind the wall of sleep the proto blues metal of the wizard it's all there already they simply remained this good one of the best debut albums of all time four and three quarter stars out of five that's what you give it that's what i give it i give it five i know you do <laughs> Um, you know, and I want to, part of me wants, no, I got it. 1970, same fucking year, which is crazy to think about paranoid paranoid was released in September, 1970, six months later, <clears throat> which is completely ridiculous. Uh, there, a bunch of the band's signature songs are on this, including Iron Man, War Pigs and Paranoid itself, which was the band's only top 20 hit. This is the last time I'm mentioning Rolling Stone but uh it ranked number one uh on the greatest heavy metal albums of all time for them when most people think of black sabbath this is the record they think about this is sort of as close to a greatest hits record as any of their regular studio albums uh became yeah and i never liked the albums with all the hits on it even though you know this is a masterpiece but to me and this is probably controversial i never liked the song paranoid yeah i, I get that it's it's sort of like the most direct distillation of what they do. It's just like, I don't know how that became such a big hit. Nazi had to do it at, at the last song of every solo show for the rest of his career. And then when Sabbath got together, they had to do it the last song. It's like, to me, it's just a throwaway song. It's not even, I don't even like it that much. Like I never just, I mean, radios, you know, that was the only one that originally they would play, but I don't like the song at all. Huh. It's I don't hate it, but I like it's it's just it's a if there's nine songs in the record, I think that's the worst one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, would you say that it's it's fair to say that this is when people talk <coughs> like that, but they're typically referring to this record? Yeah, definitely. Uh, like people who don't know the band, let's say, I mean, they're generally talking about the work on this record.
And, you know, the record was supposed to be called War Pigs, and that's why the album cover is the guy with the sword on it, the shield or whatever. But because of the war, the record label's like, no, you can't call it War Pigs. So we had, they, they changed at the last second, but they didn't get a chance to change the album cover. So right. they made Paranoid instead. Yeah, yeah. I love that little factoid because uh, if you don't know that story, it really is very confusing. So let's talk about the recording of it again. And, uh, you know, I want to mention their producer, Roger Bain. Um, so these guys come back to the studio with Roger in June 1970, four months after their first album is released. Um, and just like you say, Jim, I mean, you know, to these guys, you probably know this, but, you know, the Paranoid was written as an afterthought. Bill Ward, uh, he said, we didn't have enough songs for the album. And Tony Iommi just played the guitar lick and that was it. It took 20, 25 minutes from top to bottom. Yeah. I mean, some of the, the best songs are written that way. Yeah, yeah. So, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, they needed, they needed one more song to fill a record. And then most of the songs on the record, actually, even though they're you know, generally tighter, uh, they evolved during onstage improvisational jams. So that was basically the, uh, you know, the foundation of their songwriting style. So he, Geezer, uh, in 2013, told Mojo that that paranoid was about depression because I didn't really know the difference between depression and paranoia. It's a drug thing. When you're smoking a joint, you get totally paranoid about people. You can't relate to people. There's that crossover between the paranoia you get when you're smoking dope and the depression afterwards. <clears throat> Two years later, he was uh, in another inter interview. He said, I used to be a cutter. I'd cut my arms, stick pins through my fingers, that kind of thing. I used to get really depressed and it was the only thing that could bring me out of it. If Sabbath hadn't made it, I'd have been long dead. I'd have killed myself. So <clears throat> this, at the very least, notwithstanding its ability to stick in your craw, uh, I guess it helped him you know, kind of ex explain, you know, these sort of negative psychological traits that were driving him. A negative thing that came, if you're like a seriously uh, intense heavy metal fan like you, is that, as Iomi said, that the single, the Paranoid single, attracted screaming kids. Um, so that's when the sort of like the Black Sabbath version of Beatlemania started happening. Yeah, because that was, uh, yeah, it was a bit, bit single. And I think they did it on what the one of those British shows, Top of the Pops or one of those, and people went crazy yeah, yeah. over it. So, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, look, you never know. You know, you, you know, when they wrote it, they didn't go, oh, man, this is going to be kind of like a teeny bopper song. The kids, like, you know, a bunch <laughs> of screaming kids up and down. They never thought that. You just don't know until you release it. Looking back over the entirety of metal history, and you admittedly know more about it than I do, this record is the Rosetta Stone. I can't think of any record that kind of has all the the signifiers, all the nuts and bolts, you know, the sort of blueprint of what this art form would wind up being than this record. Uh, yeah, I get I'm all, yeah, like I said, it's got the hits. I, I was never, I like Iron Man. I love the breakdown towards the end. I was never a huge fan of Iron Man, but you know, fairies wear boots, war pigs are masterpieces. And even though, they're really popular songs. I, I, I got no problem with them. War Pigs Live is just yeah. phenomenal. Um, but my, I'll tell you, my, my favorite song off this record is, um, is Hand of Doom. That's a great one. It's unbelievable. I mean, then yeah. I love Rat Salad, just, you know, the instrumental. Planet yeah. Caravan, which, you know, Pantera covered years later, is a pretty cool, weird, trippy song. I love that. 
But, you know, Fairies Rub Boots is phenomenal. But, you know, so, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of hits. It, it reminds me of, like, the Nirvana Nevermind record. There's so many hits on it. Right, right. You know, there's, like, five, nine songs. You got, like, six of them that everyone knows that are staples in their set all the time. Yeah. And, and you know, we just – I did Nirvana a few months ago, and it's an, it's interesting that you bring up that one specifically because that album is such a part of the canon that, you know, sure, I had it when it came out in 91 and all that, but I never went back to it. I, I don't think I'd heard it for a couple of decades even just because it was so overdone. Uh, but when you crack that shit open after a while, if it's just been sitting there, uh, a lot of times you can reconnect with the meaning of it. That culture is all but eradicated since then. No, it's true. I mean, I put Nirvana, my, I got a son, so I was starting to get him into, you know, some metal and stuff. And he was starting to take some music lessons. And we started playing the Paranoid record, which I did never listen to in a long time, especially the hits like Iron Man, you know, and fairies with boots and war pigs, like, and I was, I rediscovered that album again. And the same thing went, never mind. He was a Nirvana fan. So I went back and listened to that because I needed to put it away because radio just completely ruined that record. Yeah, it did. <clears throat> well, let me ask you, how does, uh, you said your son's 10? He's, uh, he'll be 12. Oh, 12. Uh, okay. Yeah. How does Jim Florentine's teenager rebel against? Him. Does he behave really well? Does he listen to classical music? How does Jim Florentine's son rebel? No, he, I mean, he likes the same sports teams as me. He likes the same music. Okay, good. Yeah, he likes some rap stuff now and hip-hop because his friends like it and they played it in every like, TikTok video, so he knows some of those songs, which is fine. I don't get mad, but he yeah. knows the history of metal. Like, he sort of sat at the reunion tour. At one point in his at one point, probably like four or five years ago, his favorite Sabbath, uh, Sabbath song was Am I Going Insane? That's cool. Yeah. That's a very Which, and when he met Ozzy, we met him backstage. He said, are you going to play Am I Going Insane tonight? And he's like, huh? Like he didn't remember <laughs> a song. So do you have, or, or do you have relationships with all the guys in the band or just, you know, I, I, um, you know, I do a show on Ozzy's Boneyard on Sirius XM. So, yeah. you know, Ozzy and Sharon own the channel. So I got hired by them and, you know, I've hung with Ozzy a few times. He never did that metal show, but I know Sharon really well. And Jim Norton, another comedian is really close with Ozzy and me and Jim are best friends. So yeah, I've hung with him before and I, you know, Tony and geezer and Bill all did that metal show. So I know them a little bit. You know, yeah, yeah. But, but more Ozzy, you have more. Of yeah. Record. Yeah. Um, all right. So let's let's go through this record and kind of try to, you know, get away from, you know, this being the hits record and really just talk about musically the terrain they were trying to stake at that point. Because, you know, we talked about the, you know, the sophomore slump thing being a very real thing. And these guys, regardless of whether you like or don't like hits, they certainly dodged any notion of this being like. Like, you know, what are they going to do now? I mean, they, they were, you know, all, all, all guns blazing at this point. No, it's true. And one thing about Sabbath, and I always say it is every record sounded different. Yeah, absolutely. Like you couldn't put, you know, uh, Children in a Grave on volume four. Yeah. You know, so it's just weird. Like, and I love that about band. A lot of bands try to do that and they can't pull it off. But Sabbath always pulled it off. I mean, maybe the later years, not so much. In, in my head, I group them in pairs. I feel like uh, album one and two have a, so have a similarity, then three and four do, then five and six do. Okay. Uh, I, in my head, I always saw it that way. Uh, but uh, so War Pigs, definitely ubiquitous. As far as, you know, from, from where I'm sitting, 
Uh, it doesn't diminish the behemoth-like power of the tune. Uh, it's a it's a perfect sprawling classic. Uh, all the best parts of side one and side two of the debut. All the you know the cream type stuff. All the forward-looking metal stuff. There's nothing wrong with this song. There's nothing you can pick yeah. apart. It's not too long. You know, it's just it's a perfect song. Yeah, it really is. And the very first memory that Bill Ward had of performing it was at a place called the Beat Club in Switzerland in 68. Uh, the band was forced to play multiple sets every night, just like every other band uh, at that time. And they didn't really have much material. So they'd perform really long jam sessions to fill in the sets. And uh, Iomi said that Warpigs came from one of those jam sessions. Um, oh, really? So, yeah, so they had a lot of songs written. That, you know, that's similar to like Van Halen. They had so right. many riffs you know, the, written in, in these songs and pieces of songs that they could go back and piece them together. Even that last record they put out in 2012. So yeah. when Sabbath was doing those three, four sets a night, they were coming up with this material, just pieces of it, which is great. I love those tunes on that final record from the early days. Have you heard the the early Van Halen demos when they when they hadn't yet completely isolated their sound yet? Yeah, yeah. No, I'm not talking about the Gene Simmons thing. I'm talking no, about... No, no, I've heard them on the internet and on YouTube and stuff. It's really cool. Like, I, yeah. I like that they hadn't yet decided which strands musically they were going to focus on. So they have, like, almost Fleetwood Mac-style pop in there as well. And, you know, it's almost like that was less exciting once they said, we're just going to do this one thing. Right. No, you're right. Um, all right, so Paranoid. The shitty song Paranoid. Um, so... It's, it's kind of short and punchy, but lethal, like being stabbed very quickly with a switchblade, an experience that, thank God, I have not yet had. This is the first single from the record, um, <clears throat> B-Side, The Wizard. And uh, yeah, I you know, I can understand why you wouldn't connect with this, but this is probably, if, if somebody has never heard Sabbath before, it's, this is a pretty decent place to start. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I guess, but it's just, you know, most of the, most of Sabbath's, you know, songs don't sound like paranoid. That's true. Not quick two minute and 32 minute songs either. Right. They're not, they didn't, they didn't write the right hit singles. So I, I always thought I'm like, man, if they would have just picked some other Sabbath song to be like the song that they would play on the radio to be their most popular song for the masses. Like, why did they pick Paranoid? They could have picked a lot of other songs, I thought. So if uh, if some douchebag crosses paths with you and, and, and asks you, never heard Black Sabbath before, what would you start them off with? A song or album? Actually, both. But I'm, I was really asking about a song, but either. <sighs> That's tough. And, I, you know, maybe like a fairies wear boots. And so this is this would be the record that you would initially start them off with? I think so. Yeah, I think you got to go with the like the greatest hits record and then go from somewhere else. It might be too weird for them to start off with a volume four. Right, right. So um, something like that or the later Never Say Die technical ecstasy record. So I think a paranoid. I always do that with Metallica. When I get someone in the Metallica that doesn't know them, I go, go, go to Master of Puppets first. And then I'll tell you which album to go to next. Because <laughs> Kill Em All is too, like, it's too raw. And it's, you know, and Ride the Lightning is great. But I say, go to Master of Puppets and you become a fan. Then I'll, I'll tell you the next record to go to. So, so jumping way forward here, I'm curious what you think about the Rick Rubin touch for these heavy metal acts, since we're, we're going to be dealing with that with Sabbath. How do you think he fared with, uh, with Metallica? I love it. 
I love yeah, Rick Rubin. Yeah. I love most of the stuff he's done is, is amazing. Some of the best records, most of the stuff that he's done, the metal stuff is has been great. Yeah, it's is it, it's really just those two, right? Is there is there other metal stuff that he did in in terms of revitalizing old bands' careers? Well, not old bands' careers, but he did uh, he did the Slipknot Volume Three record, which is to me their their best record, and. Um, you know, he did. It's not actually metal, but he did the these couple of Andrew Dice Clay records, "A Day to Laugh That Died," where he bombs, and it's so funny. People are walking out of a room. He's playing in front of like ten people, and that was Rick Rubin's idea. And it's it's just masterpiece. No shit. So, it, oh. so is he doing like a Bob Zamoda thing where it's uh, intentionally bombing? Or he no, he just goes up on stage with no material and just riffing. And just people are walking out. This is in the heyday of his career when he sold, was selling out Madison Square Garden. Wow. He already put out his album. He had the HBO special. It went double platinum. And Rick Rubin's like, hey, let's do an album where you like, you know, you go go into a comedy club, Dangerfields, unannounced in front of like 15 people on a Monday night at like 10 o'clock and just go up there and riff with no material. I don't want you to do any material. Just kind of come off the top of your head and just mess around. And he fucking bombed? A bombs and he, they put it out and it's genius. That's amazing. I love that. That's a, there's a record called having fun with Elvis on stage. You ever hear that? No. So in, I think it was, I don't know the exact year. I believe uh, it had to have been mid to late seventies cause he was out of his fucking mind, but it's just between song patter that is totally drug addled. There's no music on it. Oh, really? Yeah, and it sounds interesting. Yeah, yeah. You're kind of a, uh, from all the descriptions uh, that Meredith has, has talked to me about, your, your representative, like you're, you're basically an Amish man. You don't really like uh, the modern technology that much. You, if you could, you don't like, uh, uh, you don't like all, the, all that stuff, do you? No, because, well, yeah, I don't. And I'm also, I'm not a tech guy, so I don't like, it drives me nuts. Like, if I can't figure it out, I don't want to be the tech guy. Right, right. right. So I, I can't, you know, there's just too much every week that you got to change something. It's some, some new thing you got to do now. And this one, and there's new service and you've got to download yeah. this thing. And it drives me nuts. Yeah, it's a pain in the fucking ass. It is. And it's constantly changing. I mean, it's like, you know, life was a lot simpler back in the day. It was even just a few years ago. Yeah. Uh, now I got a fucking hashtag and, and at everything. And yeah, it's like, I don't, you know, I just, it's too much. I can't I spend my whole day. It, it doesn't mean anything. They see it 10 minutes later to run to something else. They don't care. Yeah. We're fucked. We're all fucked. Yeah. It's good. We're completely doomed. All right. So planet caravan, uh, a little ambient breather before we're clobbered over the fucking head with the next mighty anvil on the record. Uh, say what you want about these guys not being hippies, but this track proves they weren't afraid to bust out the bongos and the flute. Uh, these, this is a great tune. I love this, man. I really do. It's this, so trippy, you know, and it's like, it is. you could tell that it's a song where people put the headphones on, maybe they smoke a little weed and listen yeah. to this. And I just love how Sabbath would put songs like this on every record and just, you know, slow, completely slow it down. I remember Metallica tried doing that, I think on the load record, if I'm not mistaken, like, why would they put a slow song on all of a sudden after five heavy songs? And they're like, well, Sabbath would do that all the time. Yeah. And, and, you know, the, the real, uh, what it comes down to here is that if you're going to slow things down, then the next song that is going to, is going to punch you in the face is going to hit that much harder. Yeah, absolutely. 
So, you know, if you don't know uh, the first thing about texturing your work, uh, then it's really just going to sit there like you just like uh, you're farting in someone's face, basically. So Iron Man, the story of of the actual title is uh, that uh, that Ozzy, when he heard the uh, the guitar riff at rehearsal for the first time, said that it sounded like a big iron bloke walking about. And my favorite thing about the whole story is that Iron Bloke became the title for a short time. Did you know that? I, know that. I never heard that Iron Bloke was originally Iron Bloke, which is the least metal sounding title ever. Yeah. Iron Bloke. Uh, you got to fucking love that. It's been played a billion times. <clears throat> It'll never get old for me. I just there's something about this song. It's an absolutely tireless thing for me. Does this, are you over this one or is this, can you still find new things hearing this? No, I'm over this one, but it's not nearly as overplayed as Paranoid. I mean, it's so heavy, the song, the riff is, you know, so heavy. And when I went back and listened to it about four years ago, when I started to get my kid in the Sabbath, I appreciated this song even more. Yeah. You know, uh, and I love the ending. I love the breakdown and the ending. It gets so heavy and stuff like that. So, um, I can't say anything, you know, it is a little overplayed and they did it every concert too. Ozzy would always do it every concert. I was like, all right, I could do it out there. You could probably switch out some other song, but he rarely did. So maybe that's why I have a little sour taste, but the song's a classic. Yeah, it really is. The, the VH1 called it the greatest heavy metal song of all time. Not that they know, uh, you know, besides your show, a hell of a lot about metal, but to say that it is, is certainly uh, not a controversial opinion. The next song, I never really like all, all that much. Electric Funeral is kind of less redolent to pure evil and more like EC Comics, which is not bad by any means, but not as much uh, of the real deal as the rest of it. To me, this is my second favorite song on the record. No shit. Okay. I, I love it. It's so it. heavy. I was it's hoping so... for this. Tell me, tell me, what did I miss here? I, I just love the heaviness of it. It's just, yeah, yeah. you know, I, I, that's, I've always, for some reason, I was always attracted to this song. Like, um, I don't know, just cause it was, you know, it's probably, the, it, it's probably, it's the heaviest song on the record. I, it, it feels like Hand of Doom is to me but um well well, well i'm t- talking like overall like the you know, hand of doom slows down then it gets heavy then it's at the end and stuff but uh i don't know i mean well hand of doom is a whole other story like that's my favorite song on this record but i, I put right. electric funeral too huh yeah it, it didn't it didn't hit me as hard i would say that it's uh it's my least favorite song on the record but hand of doom uh that one i you know it's not the first one that i think of when i think of this record um but it really punched me in the fucking nuts this time around really sludge um it just drags like the monkey's knuckles on the the midsection is what really hit me uh this time around it really pulls together tight and takes off uh and the uh, uh the the guitar solo almost feels like a raga like an Indian Raga. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, I was happy, you know, Sabbath when they did the reunion tour, uh, the last reunion tour, they brought this song back and was playing it live, which just was always a forgotten song. Like they, ne- you know, the Sabbath with Dio and whoever, whoever else was playing with Iomi never did it. Ozzy never did it solo. And then they decided to bring this back, which was like, I just, uh, just that alone, seeing that in the set list was like, I'm going to see him an extra time just to hear you that. Know that they were going to play it. Well, you know, you see the set list once it's out there 
everybody's talking about like what's on the list and all that stuff. Right. And they brought back hand to doom. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad that they exhumed some of the more, a lot of the stuff that, uh, you know, that you were kind of tired of, it seems like they were tired of the same things. And so added some really exciting shit before they called it a day. Um, rat salad, which you'd mentioned before, I, I would say points for the, for the great title alone and Bill Ward's Ginger Baker moment in the sun drum solo. I'm not a huge fan of drum solos. Um, you know, I'm still kind of shaking off the debut's B-side British blues cream moves. I do like the song, but I'm not a drum solo guy. I'm not either. And I don't like them when they're in concert because it's just like, uh, here we go. Everyone's going to take a break. Drummer's got to show off, which I get it. He's back there. He wants a little attention. But this song is just heavy, too. And I... I like that there's no lyrics that Ozzy doesn't sing in the song. I love this song. I, I think, uh, you know, Fairies Wear Boots is, aside from Hand to Doom, is my favorite song on the side. And that track really fucking swings. Uh, again, you know, Bill is, Bill Ward's playing a really big hand in that. It's uh, unbelievable, Fairies Wear Boots. Like, that's a song that Ozzy should have been playing solo. And then the Sabbath, Fairies Wear Boots, more, I thought, more than like Iron Man. Like yep. that would, to me, that's a better song. Fairies wear boots than Iron Man. Right. Right. And this is, and everybody knows fairies wear boots. Like every uh, Sabbath or Ozzy fan would know fairies wear boots. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's got one of those, you know, confusing intro titles, Jack, the stripper slash Jack the stripper. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> War pigs is Luke's wall. That's right. Yeah. That's right. I didn't even write that one down because it was just making me sick. Yeah, so I know. It's I, I, I don't know what I don't know what they're talking about with that. So fairies wear boots. Lyrically, uh, apparently, uh, the first part of the song is about the the skinheads who cornered Ozzy and called him a fairy because of his long hair. But also, uh, you know, Geezer has talked about how Ozzy's lyrics went off on random tangents and that the second half of the song was about LSD. Yeah. Some of the lyrics was some drug induced dream that geezer had too. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of uh, geezer's dreams are the, you know, are the, yeah. Tones. yeah. Uh, this is unquestionably the most overexposed Sabbath LP and also the one that most people are referring to when they refer to them. And it's stuffed to the gills with an embarrassment of classics. It's unquestionably front loaded. In my opinion, I know you don't think so. Um, but the flip is strong enough to hold its own. Again, I give this one four and three quarter stars. This album paranoid reminds me of the deep purple machine head album with all the hits on it. Yeah. Yeah. And I like listening to the other deep purple records. Um, no, I, this gotta be five stars too. Talk to me about, okay, so talk to me about the Deep Purple records that really pump your nuts. Well, I'm just saying, like, everybody always goes to Machine Head. No, 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 I, I get it. So which is the one that you go to? Uh, Live in Japan. I got to go In Rock. In Rock's great, too. Uh, I, I even I like Fireball, but I, I, I love the Live in Japan record. Live in Japan's awesome. That, that, front to back, it makes no sense to me why In Rock is not considered to be a classic on the same exact level as Machine Head. No, it's true. I know. So good, It man. probably just got lost in the mix when it came out. And, and they, they fell hard, to me, anyway. I mean, Come Taste the Band is embarrassing. And yeah, that, was, yeah. that was really early into their career. They had like, like three or four great years. Yeah. 
Yeah, I didn't like the 60s stuff before Ian Gillen got in. I didn't like it at all. Thanks so much for joining us. Be sure to stay tuned because this Tuesday on Discography's The Private Press with Paul Major, we are foolhardily tackling D.R. Hooker's private press release, The Truth. And this Thursday's Wildcard episode features another classic episode of Queasy Listening, wherein we tackle Guns N' Roses' Chinese Democracy. And then next Sunday, of course, we're going to plow on Jim and I into Master of Reality and Volume 4. A heartfelt discography thanks goes out to our graphic designer, Todd Zimmer, and my beautiful wife and son, Jen and Mason. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week on Discography. Discography.